here at Aloka Vihara, visiting my friends, my sisters in the holy life, and seeing the extended community, people I'm getting to know better each time. It's very nice. Before I came here, I was on a 10-day retreat um, at Spirit Rock, and I see about, I think, six people who were here were also on that retreat in this room. And... Um, so I really feel a lot of um, goodness that um, resulted from that, and I imagine that many others do as well. And I wanted to just take this opportunity to um, reflect around the purpose of retreat and, in particular, what happens afterwards. How is the transition and um, what what kind of things can we do to maintain the benefits that we've we've um, gotten from that experience? So there's many different reasons why each of us would choose to go on a retreat, um, probably particular to each person. But I think in general, we would want to use the opportunity to deepen the practice because we find the conditions to be supportive or conducive. We know that in the regular day-to-day life, we don't always have as much time to perhaps meditate as we would like. So when we have an opportunity to go on a retreat, we can give ourselves the time to really devote to that, um, to focus more, to develop and to cultivate those, um, you know, the teachings of the Buddha. So we know it's um, not like normal everyday life because the conditions are, are tailor-made for to optimize the, the chances of our seeing things clearly. But even so, it's um, a good intention to, to take that opportunity and to use those conditions for what they can offer. So having, sharing that time and with people who are also with the same intention to look deeply into our hearts and minds, to understand the Dhamma and those who are keeping the precepts either five or 
right, depending on the type of retreat. It gives a sense of safety and a sense that we can relax and, and be with whatever arises. For as we know, it's not always easy being on retreat. We might wish that we could always have peaceful mind states, but we know that's not the case. Often if our mind does manage to get calm, we'll see many things arise that, are, that are, could be uncomfortable. We see patterns and we, we may think that, boy, we're, we're in pretty bad shape. But this is actually part of the reason we, we do this is so that we can start to notice some of these habits and patterns and unskillful ways that we, um, we fall into. Not that this is who we are, but to see them as conditioned arising and passing away. So when we're on a retreat, we have less distractions. We can't run away so easily. And this way we have a chance to to see things as they come up, as they feel so solid and you know, it could be that the mind is contracted. But then over time we watch and we notice how it starts to, to break up. I know for myself, the first uh, few days of this last retreat, there was... There was quite a bit of resistance and contracted mind states. Just, you know, things that I saw or heard or felt I, I didn't want. And there was this inner commentary that was saying, oh, it shouldn't be that way or it should be this way instead. And, you know, it was just like every sensory input was, was getting some kind of reaction and so that wasn't exactly a calm, pleasant mind state. But I watched over time. I could see, okay, this is, this is causing me suffering. It's not so much those things out there, but it's the way I'm reacting to all these things. What if I were just to, to notice that and to not go grabbing after it, to not let the mind go running after all these things? So when I allowed myself to just remain with that, you know, just the feeling tone, just knowing the impression of these sensory inputs, then I could just allow it to be what it was, feel it and let it fall away, and things become came much more peaceful. And I could begin to look at different layers of, of what was arising within me. So over time, we, what I find to be very powerful on retreat is to, to notice those changes. Even the way we look at a person, or you know, we might come in with a certain idea of who a person is, or, or we see this person and we think that they're like this. And then, I mean, this can happen also in daily life. And then that perception starts to shift as we stop holding it in place because we see the way that we're contributing to the way we're creating this. So it's, 
I find, and I, I imagine many of you find it worthwhile to watch this process, to notice that these things that are arising and ceasing aren't truly who we are, and the people that we are encountering are not the fabrications that we make them out to be. But of course, retreats have their limitations also. They have a beginning and they have an ending. And they are, as I said, composed of specialized conditions. And these conditions aren't the same when we leave. So it's like we have something very precious. You can imagine maybe a a very delicate glass or vase. And even the slightest wind could possibly shake it or blow it over and it could shatter. It's almost like we have to sometimes feel we have to guard this or it might be damaged. And, and retreats can give that kind of soft holding in which other things can arise and be seen. But their limitation, of course, is that this is, this is a condition that's set up. And afterwards, we may not have that condition. In fact, most likely we won't. We might have to go right back into a work situation, deal with relationships that are difficult, like just going onto the treadmill fast speed the amount of sensory input would most likely increase dramatically once we leave and and go out to our jobs or you know even back into the vihara the same kinds of conditions stimulate Reactions, if we're not careful. I remember one of the teachers, one of the elder nuns back in England, would say after our three months of winter retreat, watch carefully after this first, you know, this week that you're out of retreat, because you'll start to see the way that we form, that our self is formed again, and that these habitual tendencies start to rise up again. This is a very um, potent time that we can notice that interface between once, you know, the time where we were able to relax into a more spacious place, not only outside but inside ourselves, and then coming back and touching back into the same kind of things that trigger us before. So as soon as the retreat ended, I joined a few others and we had a, um, in a car and um, we were driven back here to the Vihara. And there were friends that, um, one in particular, I hadn't seen for quite a while. So as you can imagine, um, we weren't keeping noble silence. And we were just chattering away and talking about this and that and these people and, um, you know, acquaintances and common friends we had. So um, I noticed that um, I got a lot more tired from that. It's like talking takes a lot of energy. And the speed in which, you know, things are, are happening 
and the, the sensory input is just picked up dramatically. So I found myself being quite tired that night and, and the next day. Fortunately, I didn't have to go out to a work situation, but I, I found that I couldn't quite pick things up um, quickly. And it was nice that I didn't have to, and that I had a little bit of a buffer, but that may not always be the case for everyone. So, just even physically, coming off retreat can be an impact. And so we need to take care, and if we can, possibly not push ourselves quicker than we need to. So I'm not suggesting that we try to make the conditions last and preserve them exactly as they were, because that that's unrealistic. Although many of us might find ourselves wondering, when's the next retreat? And we get these uh, retreat junkies. <laughs> I heard about one town in IRC, and I was thinking, oh, could I go on that one? <laughs> so um, it happens, because there's something that, you know, happens, and we touch into maybe a peaceful abiding, and, and that's very beneficial. And maybe we have some insights, and we think, oh, if I could just preserve this, and then... Afterwards, it seems maybe to be slipping away like sand through the fingers. Fortunately, when I got back, the next day was very lovely, and I was able to go out and take a walk on the beach. And as I was walking, as you do, you see sometimes these prints on the sand, and noticing the waves coming in and going out, and washing away the prints that were probably just made not too long ago. So I could walk out one direction when I come back, those same prints may not even be there. And what arose for me was this sense that, ah, a retreat can leave these impressions on our hearts and our minds. And they could be very meaningful. You know, some insights, some a sense of opening and connecting to something deeper within ourselves. And it's like imprints on the sand, but then it can feel like the waves just come and and just take that away. And where is it? It could be dissolving or, or fading. And it can leave a sense of sadness maybe or or even a depression at times. But as I was walking Another sense came that actually the wave just may touch that impression and pick it up. It's kind of a poetic image, but it somehow receives that impression and then it takes it back out to the ocean. And the ocean is that great reservoir, that great reserve of what we know in our heart. So it isn't lost. So the, f- the very reason that things resonate with us, you know, when we're on retreat, we often, you know, feel a resonance maybe with what's been what's said. And why is that? It's because there's something inside that's resonating with. 
And it may not be something solid or something that we know even intellectually. But there's a, there's a space inside that when it receives the, this truth, it knows that. In lay life, I had some instruments in my house, and um, they were very beautiful. So we would keep them sometimes just in the in the room, and maybe hanging on the wall. And I remember when we'd play a, a note, say on the guitar, and there'd be a, perhaps a mandolin on the wall, and it it resound. It would make a it would make a sound, and I wasn't even touching it. There was a resonance there. And what made that possible? Actually, it's the emptiness within that instrument that made that resonance possible. And in the same way, that resonance that we experience when we come in contact with truth is only possible because there's this this space, this, this emptiness inside, an emptiness that is really full and that's something that's impossible to to categorize or catalog or quantify. We may think, oh, if only I could remember all these wonderful things that were said on retreat, and, and I forget them, and how can I even practice them now if I forget them? I believe that we, we receive that impression in our heart, and it's not lost. It remains with us. And to, we just need to access it. And the way we can access it is to come into that still place, that empty place that's really full. The wisdom that we, that sense of knowing within us that isn't lost, but often just gets covered over with the busyness, the activity. Not that they can't go together, but it's tricky because we can get drawn out so easily. So of course we have to engage with things. We have we have things we do, things that are meaningful. And it's not to say that we can stay back in a shell and protect that. But what I'm suggesting is that actually instead of trying to protect it in such a way as to, say, armor ourselves or close, close up, we, should, we can connect with that, that inner resonance or awareness that remains with us. And that, let that be the continuity that it gets built up. Sometimes the, the teaching is presented in a way where we're trying to focus, really narrow our focus, and get this one-pointed samadhi. That's one way of going about it. We can focus on one particular thing, a breath or a sensation or a nimitta or whatever it might be. And 
By doing so, we, the, the aim is to exclude everything else. So then when we have this, these perfect conditions, say at a retreat, then it becomes more likely that we'll be successful in doing that. But we will still maybe have to work hard at it. But the conditions are set up in such a way and built up within ourselves that we can really narrow down and focus in that way. Now that's one approach. But another approach is seeing samadhi as having more of a broader base. And the continuity being the continuity of awareness itself. So then it's not at the exclusion of everything else. We're not seeing that outside impediments are things to be kept at bay or protected from. These things can be known. And that one-pointedness is actually the, the awareness itself. Ajahn Chah used the simile of being one, a person in a room sitting on a chair. And there's only one chair in the room. And many people may come in and out. They might yell at you. They may make funny faces, do all kinds of things. But they won't stay for very long because they have nowhere to sit down. So you're sitting on the chair and they just come through, do their thing, and then go on. And that's that. A different kind of one-pointedness. It's the kind that's really focused on awareness itself so that it allows whatever arises. It doesn't try to prevent or narrow down in such a, in such a way. Ajahn Sumedho would call it the still point that includes. So I think this is a kind of approach that is worth working with. At least I find it helpful because then when I transition to daily life, I don't have to replicate the exact conditions that I had in a retreat. I could bring my awareness to whatever is happening, even to the very thing, things that we take for granted, such as seeing. I can know that seeing is happening. Or if my eyes are closed, I can know seeing is not happening. The same for listening, for hearing. I can know that there is sound, there is listening. Or there is the absence of sound. I can know the gaps. And the same for feelings. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. You've heard all this before. But this continuity of practice is, is very important it's, it's building the mindfulness muscle, if you will. And once that gets built stronger, then wisdom just naturally arises. We don't have to fear losing something, losing these jewels or these, these gems of wisdom that we've, we felt we had. But where have they gone? We just keep building the momentum of, of mindfulness in daily life, using that awareness, being aware of awareness itself. And even if we we lose it, as we will, we forget, then as soon as we remember, there's mindfulness once again. So it doesn't have to be the kind of mindfulness that, that 
just focuses down on one minute thing. Otherwise, we'll probably get very frustrated because there's going to always be other things coming into the field and seeming to interrupt that. Some of you will know the teachings of Sayadaw Tejaniya and his book, Awareness Alone is Not Enough. When I first heard of that title, I kind of, I got irritated because I, because Ajahn Sumedho would talk all about awareness, awareness, awareness. And so I'm thinking, what is this, this guy talking about? Um, you know, Tejaniya. Awareness is it. That's what it's all about. But, once I read more in the book, I realized, ah, oh, it's the same thing. He's saying it's not just sati, but it's sati panya or sati sampajana. So it's that mindfulness, sati, plus panya, wisdom, or sampajana, which is commonly translated as clear comprehension. So it's not just a very small thing that we're mindful of, but we can also be mindful of the context. So there's four aspects to Sampajana or clear comprehension. And one is to know the purpose of what we're doing. So you can imagine being very, very, very mindful walking across the street. You know each step as it touches lifting, moving, placing, pressure, texture, and all that. But if you're forgetting why you're crossing the street or what other cars there might be around you, you could come into some harm. Maybe a car will come and shake you out of your little mindfulness. So you need to know the context and the purpose. Maybe sometimes you've walked into a room like I have and then forgot why you went in there. Has that ever happened? So we can be really mindful along the way, but forget bigger context of why we're doing something or if it has a benefit. That's also part of that sampajana, something beneficial. So when we're meditating, we could be very mindful, but we need to also be aware of what is this doing for me right now? Is this making me all tight? Am I grasping after something? The second part of clear comprehension is suitability. Is this the suitable thing for me to be doing right now? So maybe we are feeling really stressed after a hard day, would it be more suitable to sit down and meditate or in sitting position or would it be better to walk? Would it be better to focus on the breath or would it be better to to go through the body? This is something we need to discern for ourselves. This is an aspect of Sati Sampajana. What is the most suitable right now? 
Sometimes we'll want to keep silence. Other times it'll be more suitable to talk. During one of the rains retreats, back in the time of the Buddha, some of the monks came up to the Buddha and said, we had a really great retreat. We didn't speak to each other the whole time. And the Buddha said, why did you do that? This is a time for you to talk and discuss the Dhamma. Normally you're not together. This is the time to come together and to discuss things. So it wasn't suitable at that time to be silent. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it's really beneficial. And we know that we can just step back a little bit, give ourselves that little bit of a break or buffer that we don't always have to engage. So this is the sampajana or panya, the kind of wisdom that comes in. So we're not just following one method all the time, but we're sensing what is needed. Another aspect of sampajana is is what's called domain or field. So it's it's like is this mindfulness practice only good when I'm sitting on the cushion? Or can I take it somewhere else? Can I bring it into different activities? Can I bring it to bear on various Issues. <clears throat> Sometimes <clears throat> people might think that if we meditate, <clears throat> or those people who meditate are just living in a bubble and can't relate to the, the real issues of, of the world. But if we take sati and sampajana together, then we're bringing our mindfulness and we're letting it bear upon the various things that we face so they can meet each other. We can ask ourselves, what is suitable? What is beneficial? Is this the right domain for me to be bringing my mindfulness to? Am I aware of the, the four foundations of mindfulness? That's also part of the domain. What kind of feelings are arising? What kind of perceptions are arising? What kind of thoughts? Mental formations? All of these things intertwine and overlapped. So mindfulness is is not just one little narrow thing. It's actually quite large and embracing. And the last aspect of clear comprehension has to do with um, non-delusion. Or are we able to know when there's delusion present? When we're caught up, say, in views so much that we can't be open to other other ideas. We might 
get very fixated, <coughs> very we might be clinging to something. And when we do that, there's an element of delusion there, because we couldn't we couldn't possibly see all around us. It'd be like if you were trying to go somewhere and you had the map right in front of your face and yet you couldn't see beyond it. So sometimes we, we like certain maps. You know, we can be attached to them. And it's not that they're not useful, but we need to somehow set it down too so we can see all around us and notice new things that are coming into the field. So for those of us who have recently come off of retreat, I hope that it's been a relatively smooth transition and that we we know that this practice is not something that's just only supported in those conditions, but something that we we can carry with us. And that resource within us is something that we can access anytime. It does often take putting a bit of a check on that momentum of of rushing ahead or you know just going out and getting absorbed into things sometimes we need to pull back a little take a pause but we can do that we can touch into those very same beautiful things that we experienced on retreat we can still access that in our daily lives just small moments so the continuity is not continuity of states like mental states or emotional states or feelings of pleasant feelings bright expansive mind states because those won't always be continuous they'll change but the continuity is the continuity of awareness so that we know when things do are present and when they are absent. So I'd like to encourage you to to continue with that same kind of way that we meet experience. Something that was talked a lot about on retreat is is that meeting of what arises with openness without judgment and if anxiety comes in to where we might be feeling oh no I can't remember this or how am I going to keep this going? That's just know that as anxiety. Anxiety always has to do with something in the past or something in the future. But in the present moment, when there's a knowing, 
of anxiety, then there's no longer anxiety. But I notice how the pattern can just kick in. It's as though, even if you don't have something to be anxious about, it's just like, ah, something I should be doing. It can just come in. Just to take a moment to to breathe, to be come back to the present. And then from that place we'll be able to attend to the very next thing, one thing at a time. So for those of you who may not have gone on the retreat or may not have the opportunity to go on retreats very often, maybe there's a way to be creative in your own home situation. Or sometimes if we just go out and take a walk, we can give ourselves the kind of space and the quiet and solitude. Because it's not just about physical solitude. It's also about a, an inner solitude of mind, different levels of, of viveka. So I'd like to offer the, any of the benefits and merit of this sharing to all those who share the Dhamma, either with words or without words, particularly my teachers who've helped me along the way. And are continuing to help me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.